This week, so many of us have been full of grief over suffering and death. We've been struck anew by our world's great violence and how precarious and unsafe each of us is at all times because the the veil of safety has been pierced. And so... Many ways it is a reminder of things we already know but want to forget a, or to distance ourselves from or that we are afforded some of the luxury to buffer ourselves so we don't have to deal with. We can, because of influence or affluence, we can just put enough space in between ourselves in suffering. But when a private Christian school in an affluent neighborhood and an evangelical part of the world feels it, so many of us feel it too. Reading about it and seeing pictures and hearing stories, just one degree of separation from pastor friends, it's heartbreaking. It feels close to me. It feels close to us. It's close to my family too, not that we've lived through a horrific school shooting filled with malice and the perfect demonic storm of hate and mental unhealth, but because we survived a shooting from a similar weapon at a Little League field, it was the apparent result not of malice, but of negligence, of carelessness, of too much comfort, and maybe even a little bit of a thrill around devices specifically designed to destroy in quickly. It is maybe the most helpless feeling in the world to know that something so terrifying just happened and it could happen again. It, it, it's probably going to happen again. And then you hear people like the Tennessee House Rep, Tim Burchett, say the quiet part out loud. He said, we're not going to fix it. And that sent me into a rage, but it also makes me weep to cry out, God, save us, save us from ourselves, save us from our idolatries of guns and quote unquote safety and violence. Save us from living these kinds of lives where our kids aren't safe and we won't do anything about it. Save us from living lives also of suspicion and hardening down and retribution. God, save us. Because we can't, we won't save ourselves. God, save us. This is the world that Jesus entered into. A violent and destructive world full of suffering and looking to be saved. Today's story that Natasha read, that Palm Sunday entrance story, Jesus coming into the gates of Jerusalem is one of those really important ones which all the papers, well, all four of the gospel writers picked up. This is Jesus' movement towards death. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, and by the time he gets there, he's whipped up all sorts of hype and fanfare. He's generated quite a crowd. Crowds of this sort were then and still are viewed as threateningly political. Uh, A couple of generations after Jesus, Emperor Trajan 
wrote in a letter to Pliny the Younger in uh, the year 111. He said, when people gather together for a common purpose, whatever the name we may give them and whatever function we may assign them, they soon become political groups. So don't say that our faith isn't fundamentally political. Palm Sunday reminds us that it is and that it must be. And then it importantly shows us how it must be political. Expectation has been built. There are all sorts of signals for who Jesus is, or at least who the crowd hopes for him to be. This is the king returning for the first time. But there are clues that this is a different kind of king. You see, there are all these little remixes, these subversive edits to the story. Instead of riding in on a war horse, Jesus comes on a humble colt. This is a, a remix uh, to Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Sing aloud, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king will come to you. He is righteous and victorious. He is humble and riding on an ass, on a colt, the offspring of a donkey. And we're not just dealing with theoretical, theological territory here. This sort of processional had happened already in this second temple era of Jewish life. I grew up as a Catholic kid, and we had a handful of extra books in our Bibles, known as the Apocrypha, and this is kind of like the Criterion Collection DVD with a bunch of extra material and outtakes. I've always loved, as a kid, paging through these books when I was bored in Sister Monica's religion class and giggling that there were several named Maccabees. This sounded like the perfect name for like a suburban... Um, uh, restaurant or something, Maccabees. As an older, still being theologically educated kid, I now realize some of the Im import that these writings have. They tell of the messianic expectation and revolutionary hope that was going on at the time and ahead of Jesus. It's another sermon for another time, but the Maccabees, who are associated also with Hanukkah, led a guerrilla warfare-styled coup against an unjust, blasphemous, and gross Gentile-occupying army. They took back the temple, and they expelled pagan oppressors. The victory parade following this revol revolutionary victory was recounted in 1 Maccabees 13. It said, on the, on the 23rd day of the second month, in the 171st year, so there was an actual occurrence of this. This is history. It says, the Jews entered it with praise and palm branches and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments and with hymns and songs because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. So when Jesus rides into Jerusalem in the modest sedan of his day, he is greeted with the expectation and fanfare by some true believers who mostly just want the glory that will end their suffering. This combination of grief and hope is so present in the midst of this palm processional celebration. Uh, the, the Luke version of this procession says, as Jesus came to the city, he observed it and he wept over it. Jesus came to the city, observed it, and wept over it. He came, he saw, and he wept. What a remarkable reconfiguration of the phrase and concept of Veni Vedi Vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. 
This was the like not so humble brag of Julius Caesar in 47 BC after a swift military victory. And then I, I came, I saw, I conquered world. Jesus comes and sees and weeps. In a world expecting triumphant messiahs who have it all together and ride in on war horses or at least tanks and Humvees, Jesus opts for a donkey and a borrowed one at that. Who knew they'd encounter such an improvisational and participatory messiah? What they probably saw as haphazard or lacking might just have been a little wink and a little nod at Jesus embodying the God who is never in need. The king of all creation, the father of lights who gives good gifts, the Lord who owns the cattle on a thousand hillsides. And Jesus also includes his friends in this gathering, in this conspiracy of subversive peace. You see, they're looking for someone who will do it all for them, who might punch their ticket who might, uh, uh, you know, ahead of time they're, they're, they're spotting out where they, where they want to settle on Jesus' right and this left, um, what office they want, uh, the corner one with a view. They want someone who will punch their ticket, but they get someone who, in the ascent language of Psalm 126, sows with tears and will reap with songs of joy. This Asymmetry has to be a little upsetting to them. It's still upsetting to us. Why are you just watching all this happen? Jesus, why don't you do something? Don't you care about school kids and their families? Our passage alluded to uh, Jesus at Lazarus' graveside. Maybe we're like Martha standing outside of the room of her dead brother, questioning, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Where are you? Where were you? But what if Palm Sunday, first and foremost, is an ironic holiday of lament before it could ever be a holiday of celebration because lament has spiritual and emotional integrity. It accounts for all of the bandwidth of our emotions and it holds together both the disease and the cure, the not yet and the already, the grief and the hope that ultimately blossoms into resurrection. This is the whole gamut of the Holy Week experience. Our, our world's whole experience of the beautiful and the terrible and it's so wrapped up and tangled and tightly bound in an inextricable package. Also a little side note, I think it's ironic that, you know, in this holiday for Holy Week, when, you know, eventually we'll get to the point where Jesus is arrested and one of his disciples strikes um, a guard and cuts off his ear and Jesus puts the guy's ear back on and then he says to Peter, um, put the sword down. You don't need that sword. And, and early uh, church folk said that when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed us all. So I think it's ironic that, um, you know, we start this, we kick this week off, we hand kids these long pond fronds that look just like lightsabers or swords. And we say, don't hit each other. These aren't swords. These are bombs. And this is why this is also the most hated church holiday by parents of small kids. I'm also coming to read Jesus's identification as the gate as a bit ironic. 
We've been going through this series, and Jesus is identifying himself both with the God of Israel, I am, but also with these rich images. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. Uh, and he says, uh, bound with the sermon that Pastor Meg preached a few weeks ago, he says, I am the good shepherd. He says, I am the gate for the sheep. Jesus says, I assure you that I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and outlaws, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief enters only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came so that they could have life, indeed, so that they could live life to the fullest. It is Jesus entering the gates of Jerusalem as the sheep for the slaughter. It is Jesus coming after thieves and outlaws and revolutionaries who also walked on victory palms, albeit with far different methods and different aims. It is Jesus who is the gate who protects us and welcomes others into that salvation. But Jesus' protection, Jesus' salvation will never not include suffering. This is what Holy Week goes on to show us. Jesus' own life bears witness to this. While the thief enters only to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus comes that we may have life and have it fully, abundantly, ongoingly, overflowingly. This means the whole spectrum of life, the light and the dark, the easy and the hard, the beautiful and the terrible. This means that nothing is unseen or unexperienced and nobody is unknown or excluded by God in Christ. This means that just because you're hurting or you've been hurt, whether you're grieving or you are just crippled by sorrow, you are not forsaken by God. You are not forsaken by God. Actually, just the opposite. It is there in that hurt and fear and trauma that God is with us, is, was, and will be with us. This means that Palm Sunday complicates our theologies of glory. This is a term that Luther talked about, that Bonhoeffer after him talked about. Theology of glory that that um, once the salvation without the suffering, or, or only once salvation and no suffering. Th- these theology of glories don't have to be very fancy or, or outlandish. They can actually be pretty normal. Like one of our theologies of glory is when we whisper, God save us, just from the comfort of our quiet times and our climate-controlled environments, isolated from people who are also hurting or might be dangerous. Or when we can't or don't want to exactly articulate from what or whom we're asking to be saved from. This is, the the crowd around Jesus is likely a mixture of people so desperate from having their backs against the wall that they'll do anything, they'll take any help they can get along, that um, they'll take any help that they can get along with, you know, some other folks with maybe worse motives, some other folks with uh, lust for power and control who will hitch their wagons to anyone or anything that they think will get them there. These are the two impulses that are in us all the time. 
kind of a, a disengagement or a, a lust for power, a theology of glory. But Jesus shows us this theology of the cross. It thrust us back into the real world of our neighbors. Where there is a thief, where there has been much stolen, where far too many have been killed, and the politics and religion of destruction is at play. This is a world where our grief has a direct referent. We can name it. We know when and how it happened. We can feel it in our body and our bones. It's where our injuries have a date and a time and maybe even an x-ray. It's when the devil's breaking and entering has an address and the enemy has a name. But this victory through the cross has to happen the right way because the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. We, we can't win by perpetuating the same violence and exclusion. The theology of the cross instead cancels debts and destroys death by death. This is good news. It, the, this is the God who makes a way where there is no way and brings about new possibilities and new life. So waving these palms, which again will become next year's ashes, the theology of the cross and suffering is, is baked into the theology of glory. There's a little seed, a, a wink and a nod to what a real theology of glory might look like. Remember, Oscar Romero once said, there are many things that can only be seen through eyes that have cried. So Palm Sunday isn't the final word because there haven't been the tears yet of Good Friday. The, the cry of dereliction. Jesus saying, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus joining in solidarity back on the outside of the city gates with two thieves, two other outcasts. There hasn't yet been the emptying and the giving up, the darkness, the despair, the death. But in this maudlin Palm Sunday processional, Jesus is leading us home. He's leading us as the good shepherd, as the gate of the sheep. This is the way of God, the way of suffering, the way of irony and good ideas at the wrong times and good actions performed by imperfect people in the wrong ways. It's all so confusing and strange. And Jesus is leading us through the gate of welcome and care and safety in a world that is violent and exclusionary. And Jesus is answering our cries still. Hosanna. God, save us. He hears these cries and he reworks, rewires our imagination so that we can participate in the donkey borrowing, lament singing, tear sowing, joy reaping kingdom so that we can wave these palms and say and mean Hosanna, God, save us, and that we can walk with him into this full, endurable, and real life. Will you all pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for including us, for bringing us in, um, even when we don't know what we're saying, or certainly don't know how we should uh, join with you in this kingdom. Thanks for uh, being the gate that 
protects us and welcomes us. Thanks for leading us um, into this way of suffering in the cross. On towards life, joy, hope, and resurrection. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.